Okay, so uh, tonight we will begin our study of the history of Jerusalem. As I mentioned to those who came early, we're going to go through the history chronologically uh, in a quick, a quick, rapid manner. We'll try to cover from David to modern times in about three sessions. The highlights, some of which we've discussed in prior courses, like the history of the Second Temple period or the post-destruction period, but I'll try to introduce new material in these first few sessions. And then, uh, after the Chagim, at some point, we're going to do what I'm excited to do, and that is discuss specific places within the city, uh, along the lines like a tour guide would give you if you were visiting this this site, uh, with an emphasis on the last hundred years the Zionist period uh, to contemporary times. But of course, those which are of archaeological significance we'll discuss starting from way back. Okay, so people have been living in in the vicinity of Jerusalem for 5,000 years or more. In 1900 BCE, it was known as Ursalim, Ursalim. So the name Yerushalayim is not a new name. Some derivative of that some version of that has been around a very long time Excuse me, what language was that? in old uh, canaanite well it's similar to hebrew but akkadian so now settlement began around the gihon spring why there because you have to have water the main thing if you're going to have human settlement is a supply of fresh water and that's basically all there was at that time the Canaanites cut a tunnel to a pool within their walls next to a citadel about 4,000 years ago, which goes to show you that they had ability to manipulate the water supply, to change the topography, and make it habitable. Jerusalem became subject to Egyptian rule in the year 1458. The relevance of that, BCE, we're talking about now, the relevance of that is Egypt is a world power. And you're not going to have independent kingdoms of any stature in the land of Canaan, in the land of Israel. They're all going to be vassals subjected to some significant higher world, uh, you know, imperial power. And that it's only when those imperial powers are in decline, they're in uh, you know, steep decline, that there becomes a vacuum of power, that it is then possible for local kings to develop some significant power base and be relevant in world history. That's exactly what happens to King David and Solomon, and that's why there's an Israelite kingdom of some renown, at least for a little while. But that's because at that time, the world powers were in remission. Okay. The town was known also as Beit Shulmani, Beit Shulmani, not the house of Shulman, but rather the house of well-being. And in the late second century, second millennium BCE, the town expanded away from the Gihon Spring, further north up the Ophel Hill, almost to where the modern old city is, but just shy of that. Later on, it will extend even further up into the modern old city and up into what we call the Temple Mount. The citadel became known as Zion, Sion. 
the exact location of Zion will be subject to significant controversy, and we'll spend a whole session on trying to identify where is Zion, or maybe the name is applied to multiple places within the city over the centuries. And in the 13th century BCE, the Jebusites occupied the city. That is known to us from the Tanakh because who is ousted from the city in order to make way for David? The Jebusites. It's a Yavusi city, city of Yavus. In the Torah, we do find a, a reference to what we think is Yerushalayim. Malki Tzedek Melech Shalem, Hotzi Lechem Vayayin, Vuhu Kohen Le'el Elyon. So Malki Tzedek was the king priest to the God Most High at Salem. Where is this Salem? Yerushalayim. Avraham is ready to sacrifice Yitzchak, Akedat Yitzchak, on Har HaMoriah. Where is Har HaMoriah? So by tradition, we identify Har HaMoriah as being in the vicinity of the ancient Sion, Jerusalem. Although at the time, it was not really part of the city. It was off in the yonder a little bit north of the uh, place of habitation. The relevance of the Akedah story to the history of Jerusalem is what? What did Avraham almost do at the Akedah? Almost do a child sacrifice. Where in the city of Jerusalem does child sacrifice become a common phenomenon? Gay ben Hinom, Gehenim, hell. Later on, centuries later. But there's the allusion to it in the biblical text already in the, in the Torah in Bereshit. Was okay. a child sacrifice like the Baal contemporary with Abraham as well? Uh, the offering of a child to Baal is something we do find in the, the stories related to Moab later, later on in the Tanakh, in the book of Malachim. Um, but I'm thinking of historic. Histo- historically, yes. The child sacrifice was... Uh, a phenomenon that, was, that existed in the ancient Near East, especially in the vicinity of the land of Israel, and it was the goal of Judaic religion to extirpate that practice from our culture. Oh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successful. Yeah, because I would think that it's not so far off the base. Right. A story like Abraham, yeah. which is much more understandable given that time. Given the style of times, correct, correct. Okay, so now we find that the city of Jerusalem was attacked by Yehoshua, and maybe successfully so. So in Book of Yehoshua, chapter 10, we see the king of Jerusalem was defeated. Was Jerusalem conquered? Did it become a place of Israelite habitation? We don't, doesn't look like it. So there's mixed signals from the early books of the Nevi'im about what happened to Yerushalayim after the Israelite conquest of Canaan. If you go to the book of Shoftim, it says, The Jebusites lived there. The Benjaminites were not successful, or maybe did not attempt to, oust them from their position. Remember, the responsibility of the tribes of Israel was to dislodge the local inhabitants and to settle it for themselves. Lohorishu means you failed in your responsibility. You didn't do the job. 
this is part of Israel. We're not saying this is a, a place of God's choosing of a temple. No, no. This is just a place. Of, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the each tribe had an, an, an allotment yeah. that they were supposed to take. Jerusalem is in the tribal allotment of Binyamin, according to this version of the text. Now, and the Benjaminites and the Jebusites lived in Jerusalem, seemingly together, up until our very day. Whenever the, the, the Tanakh says, what does that mean? Contemporary to that. To the authorship of the book. The problem is we don't know when that was. So... Are there Israelites, Benjaminites in Jerusalem? It sounds like it, but it also sounds like there were others there, that it wasn't a completely Judeified city or Israelitified city. Now, Jerusalem was known as Yavus, and we don't know exactly how David captured it. But he eventually did by way of a tsinur. Is it tsinur a pipe, a tunnel, uh, a water channel? Not entirely clear. The Jebusites thought that Jerusalem was impregnable. And what does it, who did they place on the ramparts to mock the, the invaders or would-be invaders to say, you're not going to win? The, uh, people not, the not blind and the lame. Okay, the Iveru Piseach. You put the, the, the weaklings, the disabled, the incapacitated on the ramparts as if to say, we could put out almost nobody to defend this town and you still won't win. But yet David wins. Um, he did not destroy the place, and did not even uh, annihilate the population. He sort of co-opted them, and there remained Jebusites in Jerusalem even after the Davidic conquest, such that David has to buy a parcel of land on Mount Moriah for what becomes the Temple Mount, Marav Yavusi. If, if this was a, a war of annihilation, of total conquest, of take no prisoners, what is he paying for it for? He just grab it. goes to show you this was not that kind of a cutthroat situation. The people, the the the. Yet that was what we were taught. The idea was it said that if you go into a conquer, uh-huh. you try to make peace. The karate lele shalom. Correct. Right. Okay. Now. Yeah, so wasn't that against the mandate that the B'nai Yisrael was supposed to? Hacharim tacharimim, wipe them all out. Yeah. Okay, was... and it didn't happen. Okay. It didn't happen. Ma'at ma'at. It'll happen slowly, little by piece by piece. Yes. So, lest the, the animals overtake the, the, the countryside. Okay. Now, the, David renamed Zion the city of David. Zion becomes Ir David. And he summons the ark. So, the summoning of the ark is a pivotal moment in the history of Jerusalem because it goes from being just another place conquered by some political figure or military hero into a place of worship, Israelite worship. Where was the ark coming from? Where had it been previously? So the tabernacle had been in Shiloh for 369 years, according to tradition. It might be a little shorter, according to the scholars. But then it was in Novan and Givon, and then the ark was was in random places, the play, at the house of Oved Adom Hagiti, and then it's summoned to Jerusalem. The Philistines, the Philistines had their hand on it between the, between the Shiloh and the Nov. Okay. Why did David choose Jerusalem as his capital? Remember, he's coming from Hebron. He was the, the king of Judah, 
or the southern regions of the land of, of Israel. And his competitor was Ishboshet, who had his head chopped off. And then uh, David had an opportunity to unify the monarchy as it had been unified in the days of Saul. But he chooses to move northward and make Jerusalem the capital after seven and a half years in Hebron. Why Jerusalem? What are the advantages of Jerusalem? So as a matter of defense, of physical defense, Jerusalem is advantageous because it's not easy to attack it from a few of the sides and it's pretty high up. But more important, the water. The water was available. Not when they see Correct, but central location, good. Central location is a key point. How is it centrally located? To be honest, it's still fairly, uh, you know, southerly if you you look at the whole map, but it was not in Judah, and it was not in the northern regions of Ephraim and Manasseh. It was in the borderlands in between, roughly speaking, in the tribal territory of Binyamin. And this neither here nor there, neither north nor south, is like Washington, D.C. You know, if Maryland is the north and Virginia is the south and Washington, D.C. is somewhere in the, in the creamy middle, that's a good place to make everybody happy or nobody happy. So it was strategically located not to be showing favoritism to the north or the south. David builds a palace. Oh, by the way, this idea of it centrally located is... Um, stated how in Talmudic terminology, Yerushalayim lo nitchalka leishvatim. Jerusalem is not apportioned to any of the tribes. There's a perspective that it's half Judah, half Benjamin, and there's a line by the altar, and there's another perspective that says this is not a tribal territory at all, and therefore it's sort of like a District of Columbia situation. It's not a state, it's just an entity unto itself. Well, the Levium have cities that are carved out for them, but within tribal territories. Okay, so David builds a palace, but still his Jerusalem is, is tiny. It probably covered only about 15 acres, and maybe it had 1,200 people in it. This is not the impression you get from reading the Tanakh, but the Tanakh tends to aggrandize David's exploits and his career and his Jerusalem it will not grow to be a substantial city until Solomonic times in the next generation. So when the Tanakh talks about an army of 10,000, an army of 20, is that hyperbole? Sometimes, but sometimes not. Remember, there is a, there is a substantial population in the countryside. It's that the, the cities were not that large. So those numbers may be exaggerated, but there, there were thousands of people and they did fight. Okay. Place Moria have a special holiness to it because of the Akedah or because you know the story of um, uh, Yaakov lying down. So the the, 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 the Yaakov story, according to the plain reading of the text, does not take place in Jerusalem, it takes place in Beit El, Veluz Shem Rishona, which is not Jerusalem. It, it, it's the later Mefarshim who try to tie it in at an angle to Yerushalayim. But was there a perceived sanctity to the spot prior to David's purchase of the, of the parcel of land and the creation of a, of a temple there? Uh, I would imagine yes, but not necessarily just because we say so, 
it may have been that the indigenous Canaanites also thought that way. Okay. Now, uh, David did not annihilate the Jebusites. He co-opted them. He buys a plot for the altar, and he builds an altar there. The indication is that the city was expanding from the Ophel onto the neighboring mountain, and David planned to build a temple, in fact, buying cedar wood from uh, Avibal, of king of, of Tyre, but he is told by the prophet, by the Navi, that God does not want him to build a temple because his hands are hands of blood, that he shed much blood in war, but rather it's the house of God is to be a Sukkot Shalom, a tabernacle of peace, to be built by his successor who will have a peaceful reign. Okay. Well, there, there, there is a tradition of buying something to guarantee that it's yours, that nobody can complain afterwards that you stole it. Whether it's uh, uh, Yaakov who buys a parcel of land, the Mea Kisita, or... Yeah. All right, so that's the first Rashi in Bereshis, the Amar Rabbi Yitzchak. You know, why does it say that the story of the book of Genesis, the purpose is to, to show that give us the, the, the territory of the heathens. So I always say, well, why would the heathens care that our Bible tells us that it's ours? And the answer is it's not for the heathens. It's for the weak-kneed Jews to be reinforced in their, in their own beliefs that this is uh, Jewish territory. Okay. Okay. Now, Shlomo was anointed at the Gihon Spring, and David was buried shortly thereafter in the city of David. Where is Kever David? We'll spend a whole session on that later in the year uh, in the Mount Zion lecture. Okay. Solomon's wealth embellished Jerusalem. The Holy Temple was his masterpiece. The house of God stood right next to the royal palace in an imperial sacred acropolis. Now, this is something that happens not only in Jerusalem, but in other parts of the world, where the political power aligns himself or herself with sacerdotal functions so that religion and politics are meshed together or close side by side and that the institution on a hill on a mountaintop is now seen as the be all and end all that in the in the this worldly sense and in the other worldly sense here is the you know the central focus of our existence okay I, I, Hashem certainly did. So now, you're saying geographically, the city, yeah. of, city, is the city of David. City of David, yeah. And also the, uh, the Harabais. Yeah. Was that considered to be close? So the city was a very north-south city in Davidic times, Solomonic times. Think of a narrow sliver surrounded by a wall, starting at the south point at the spring at the pool, going up the hill where the t- t- today's Ir David is located, the museum, further up, like where the Dung Gate is, further up into the Temple Mount, and then enclosed again. Not including the valley in between the Harabait and today's Jewish quarter of the old city. That will come later, and certainly the, whereas today's Jewish quarter will come much later. So that's going to expand westward. Right now it's only starting in the south and moving northward, ending in the Temple Mount. Okay, so uh, the name Zion came to be associated with the Temple Mount after Solomon fortified the area. Because remember, Zion is a, is a citadel, is a defensive position. Well, it begins in one spot, but if you create fortifications in other parts of the town, that too can be named Zion. 
nothing is found to, to this day of Solomon's temple. And that might trouble you. Uh, after all, you'd think with all the excavations, we'd find something. But the archaeologists tell us that we shouldn't be surprised at all, because after all, the site was reduced to rubble and down to the foundation multiple times and rebuilt back over. So the fact that we find nothing of uh, the first temple is, not, in, is, is uh, not an example of the absence of proof is, is evidence of absence. Not at all. Lo ra'inu eno raya, as we say in the Gemara. Solomon's temple was a classic shrine of its era. It looked similar to other temples in the ancient Near East. And Solomon went from being a king of wisdom to an unpopular tyrant who overtaxed his people. But he was able to get away with it because of the economic success of the times and the glories of his buildings and the fact that nobody was invading. Rechavam, his idiot son, listened to the young advisors, the Na'arim, rather than the Zakenim, and told people that if my father smacked you with a whip, I'll smack you with a cat of nine tails, that I'll be even more tough than my father was. The northern tribes rebel and set up a kingdom of Israel. Now I'm going to read to you some psukim from the book of Malachim Aleph, uh, and I want, I want you to tell me what can we say about the power of Jerusalem, the aura of the place, to impact the lives and devotion and loyalty of the people based upon what I'm going to read to you now. That Jeroboam, Yeravam, is the breakaway king of the north. He says, Billy Bo in his heart. Ata, now, Tashuvam Lachal Beit David, the kingdom will be restored to the house of David. If the people were to return to do sacrificial offerings in the house of God in Jerusalem, the hearts of the people will be returned to their master. To Rechavon, the king of Judah. And they will kill me. And they'll return to Rechavon. What does that tell you? That his hold was tenuous because of, of the, the uh, memories and the uh, status that Solomon's temple had on these right. people, and if they keep on going back, they say, "Boy, this is the good idea uh, days, and why are we leaving it?" You know, right? Okay, and there was a political decision because he he wasn't so much interested in the religion, but getting them away and establishing a new state. Good. So the power of religion to uh, confirm to reinforce political loyalty. Jerusalem, if you go there and you see the house of God and you see a Davidic king uh, ministering over his people in the vicinity of the house of God, that looks authentic. That looks real. So it must be the case, Yeravam says, that the people will never see that again. Because if they see it, they'll realize I'm a usurper or inauthentic, a phony, and it'll be, it'll be curtains for me. So what, is, what does he do? He makes two golden calves and placed one at Beit El, which is not that far from Jerusalem in the south part of the northern kingdom, and one at Dan in the northern part of the northern kingdom. And he says, These are your gods or Israel who took you out of Egypt. The, 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 most, uh, the, the biggest sacrilege in the history of the Bible. The, calf, the golden calf. Okay, so I just mentioned this episode to teach you about the power, the aura of Jerusalem. Now, in Rechavim's reign, Jerusalem enters world history, confirmed world history, archaeologically confirmed world history for the first time. Everything we know about Yerushalayim up until this point it is known to us from the Tanakh. 
from our Hebrew Bible, which from a secularist point of view is maybe reliable, maybe not so reliable as a, as a historical document. But what can be verified by things that were found in the soil is Shishak, king of Egypt, invading the land of Israel and besieging the temple. And what does Rechavam do? He pays off the Egyptian king by using the riches of Solomon's temple. The relevance of this story is, for the first time, and definitely not the last time, the first of many times, an outsider recognizes, I can sack the temple, or not even sack the temple, threaten to sack the temple, and the people on the inside, so desperate to avoid being bludgeoned, will do what? They'll cough up all the gold. So it's a way to make money. Parnassa for the kings of the region, if they uh, threaten a sword against Jerusalem. Okay. Let's jump ahead a little bit. In the, in the ninth century BCE, Atalia, the daughter of, of Izebel and Ahab, so now Jezebel is a heathen queen married to the king of the northern, uh, the, the, the king of, of Israel, Ahab, and she marries into the Davidic monarchy, but then is able to, to uh, steal power for herself in 841, and she kills off all the Davidians. All the Davidic descendants are murdered except for one. Who is that? Yehoash, who goes into hiding, her own grandson, until he's able to be brought out as an eight-year-old kid and his handlers revitalize the Davidic dynasty. But why is she relevant? Because she, Atalia, brought the worship of Baal into Yerushalayim and into the temple itself. The first, but not the last time, that a monarch of, of Judah will be... Um, a nefarious religious influence on the public, or at least on the official worship in the you know in the central shrine. Then, Ahaz was king when the northern uh, north, northern king was the kingdom was destroyed by Assyria. We're talking now in the seven thirties, and he was religiously terrible, but he had a good son Chizkia, and Chizkia was a lucky man. Chizkia, Chizkiyahu, saves Jerusalem. Jerusalem could have gone the way of the northern kingdom and been devastated. And the history of our people might have come to an abrupt end. But what happened? Sancheriv arrives on the scene. And what, is the, what does the Tanakh say about how the siege of Jerusalem in the days of Sancheriv came to an end? So according to the Tanakh, okay, he, he packed up and left. They had 185,000 soldiers. Different story. But he packs up and leaves. And, and all of a sudden they go out and there's nobody there. And it looks like God has wrought a miracle. So the miracle was, yes, they left, but they were paid to leave. The, the unstated in the Tanakh is that a, a heavy tribute was imposed by, by Sancher van Cheskia. And it's paid and they go off to, to crush a rebellion somewhere in the east. But this could have been the end. Jerusalem was on the, the brink of destruction, but they survived. Now, the relevance of Chizkiyahu religiously cannot be understated. Um, there, there were problems in terms of the devotion of the temple officiants to the God of Israel. What does Chizkiyahu do? He destroys Nehushtan. What is Nehushtan? Nachash Nechoshet. 
the copper snake. So the copper snake is a story reading from the book of, of Bamidbar, Parshat Chukat, that, uh, that if you looked at the copper snake, you were healed. Well, according to the tradition, the copper snake was kept in circulation for hundreds of years and was seen as sort of a panacea. You know, you, 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 you looked at it, you were cured. But this had the, undes- the, the, uh, the effect, which was not the desired effect, of getting people to believe all sorts of crazy things and not believe in the God of Israel as a healer, as a Yisrael. So he destroyed it. What, what did he do? He brought the people to Jerusalem for Passover. Now we get to Jerusalem as a place of thrice annual pilgrimage. The Torah talks about Shalosh Regalim, but do we find in the earlier parts of the Tanakh that people are doing this? No, we don't. We found that they came for the dedication, which was Sukkot time in Solomon's days, but you don't find the notion of the Shalosh Regalim as a, as a play, as a, an occasion for mass pilgrimage to Jerusalem until Chizkiyahu's Pesach. And it says that there had not been a Pesach like this since the days of whenever, deep into the ancient past. Okay. In Chizkiyahu's time, the city expands to the Machtesh neighborhood in the Tarapian Valley, which is the valley in between the Temple Mount and the Jewish Quarter, and the Mishneh, the Western Hill, which is today's Jewish Quarter. So think about the, you know, the staircase when you're going from the Kotel Plaza up towards like the bagel store, uh, the pizza shop, you know, where, the, where they used to have the, the big menorah, so, uh, and where they have the, uh, the yeshiva. So th- that incline represents the Western Hill. We're talking now about 2,700 years ago, that area is becoming settled with a population and it's going to be enclosed in a wall. Okay. Chizkiah's son Menashe was evil. And he installed the roaster or the tofet in the valley of Hinnom, the Geben Hinnom. And as I mentioned, that became the code word for, uh, for hell. Let's jump to Yoshiahu, Josiah. He reigns in the late se- uh, 7th century BCE. The relevance of his reign for the history of Jerusalem is that in his time, what book is discovered in the temple? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy emphasizes what one word, ha-ma-kom, ha-ma-kom, the place. Ha-ma-kom the place that God chooses to rest his name there. Well, that place is not identified by the Torah, but in this, in this moment, where the Book of Devarim is now being publicized, the Hamakom is Yerushalayim. This is the place of God's choosing. Not just the choosing of David or Solomon, or where we happen to build the temple, but this is where God wants us to go. And he also has a Pesach. And the Tanakh says this Pesach was greater than all the Pesachs, dating back to the days of the Shoftim. Okay. Yoshiahu meets an unpleasant end. He dies at the hand of Paranacho at the Battle of Megiddo in 608 BCE. Uh, he was the last of the good kings. After his time, his son, or multiple sons, and even a grandson, had the throne briefly, but Judah is in its death throes, and Jerusalem is not going to be long for, uh, for this earth, at least in that iteration of Jerusalem. What happens in 597? Galut Yechonia. Galut Yechonia is the first significant exile from the city of Judahites, or Judeans, eastward, northeastward, to Babylonia and beyond, Persia. 
according to the tradition, the prominent citizens of, of Jerusalem were taken first. Now, why would that be the case? So according to the Talmud, it's because, well, they had to establish yeshivas in, in Bavel so that when the rest of the Jews got there, they'd have a yeshiva to go to. Just like it says uh, uh, that, that Yaakov sent Yehuda, Goshna, to make a yeshiva in Goshen when they went on to Mitzrayim before everybody else got there. That's a common theme in rabbinic literature of you send the, the, the scholars first to pave the way for Torah study later on. However, the simple read is that this was a deportation of the prominence because Nebuchadnezzar, who's the Babylonian king, wants to devastate this country and is looking to destroy them piecemeal. The cream of the crop, take them out of there. Okay. But wouldn't that be like the Nazis because they first went after the rich and the well-to-do Jews Yeah, yeah. went to in the street. That's right. Now, in, in 586, Sidkiyahu, the final Davidic king, rebels and the, and the city is put under siege and ultimately is destroyed on Tisha B'Av. As the book of Eicha laments, those who were killed were luckier than those who starved. Um, and that the Mount Zion was barren, and foxes, foxen, ran through. Shualim hilchu bo. Who was left behind? Was Jerusalem totally devastated with nobody left? Well, it sounds like the city itself really was destroyed with almost nobody there. There was a population that was left behind in the countryside. The, uh, the, the vine dressers and the olive pickers were left behind, so there's some crop some yield that the, the countryside not be economically devastated and wasted, that Nebuchadnezzar is interested in having some economic output from this country. So you leave the poor schleps behind to do agricultural work, even while the cities were, uh, were laid bare. Okay, let's now jump ahead. Cyrus the Great. He, well, so Tsam Gedalia, Gedalia is a governor who was put in charge and is assassinated by his own people for being a collaborator. And uh, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a quick story. It's a sad story. Um, so Daniel does not figure in here. Because, da- yeah. Uh-huh. And what he wanted to do, he wanted to train the Jews to be in his court. Right, so Nebuchadnezzar and the other Babylonian and subsequent Persian kings are very happy to utilize the services of talented, uh, smart Jews. Uh, And even though there are religious scruples of the Jews that interfere with their ability to totally function in a heathen court, still, they'll do the best they can. Okay, so... Let's now jump to Cyrus. What does Cyrus say about Jerusalem? Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the God of, the, of heavens has given me, and he has instructed me to build a house for him in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Who among you will go and go up? That is the last line of the Hebrew Bible. Second Chronicles, chapter 36, the last line. So Cyrus is offering a very tolerant approach of, if you want to go, go. Well, who goes? Is, is Jerusalem built back up in this moment? And the answer is not very much. Not very much. So Cyrus appoints Sheshbatzar, who was the, last, the son of the last king, Zikiyahu, to rule as governor. 
42,360 Jews go back to Jerusalem with him, although some scholars say this is an exaggerated number, that it was nowhere near that number, and the province was known as Yehud. During the, the, the second year of the reign of Darius, and we're not going to get into all the Persian kings in the sequence, it's not for now, the progress in the temple ceased. Who showed up on the scene to uh, facilitate the finishing of the job of the building of the second temple? The answer is Zerubbabel, the grandson of the last Davidic king, and Yehoshua HaKohen Agadol, Joshua the high priest. You have the, the Haftorah in the book of Zechariah about this. So Zerubbabel and, and Yehoshua are on the scene to make sure that the construction is completed and that the sacrificial service can be inaugurated. When is it inaugurated? In 515 BCE. But according to tradition, the old men cried. Why did the old men cry? It was nowhere near the glory of the first temple. I always wondered, were there any people who really remembered it? I mean, it was 70 years earlier, and people had been exiled. So were there, were there people who were left behind in their late 70s or early 80s who really remembered it? Or were there people who had gone to di- a diaspora and come back? I always had a hard time fathoming it. So we're going to see shortly as Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah comes 50 years later. Nehemiah comes in 458, Ezra arguably in 444, although chronology is not entirely clear. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem because he wants to go. He, He requests it from the Persian king, please let me go, because I feel terrible that Jerusalem is in dire straits, that it doesn't have a wall, that it's subject to depredation by the surrounding heathens. And so he goes and builds a wall in how many days? 52 days they build the wall. It didn't surround the entirety of the city. It surrounded the sort of the, uh, the old city, it, well, the older city near the, uh, the, the Citadel of David and the Temple Mount. That's because they didn't have an environmental study. They, they, they didn't need to get a review. So the enemy at that time was the Samaritan governor. Well, actually, before we get to, before we get to, to that, let's go back a little bit. The Samaritans had attempted to frustrate the building of the temple in 515, between 520 and 515. Uh, why? So according to a plain reading of the Tanakh, the Samaritans wanted to participate in this venture, and it would have been their temple too, but that they were their uh, efforts were rejected by the returning uh, Jews because they regarded the locals, the Amharits, as half-heathens, practicing a different religion from themselves. That the the uh, you know, the Jews had the, the the new Judaism, the good Judaism, and the Samaritans had some kind of a tray for religion. So it's not for you and us together to build this; it's only for us, and you guys are excluded. Of course, once they are excluded, what do they do? They do their own thing. They go to Mount Kerizim. Yeah. They ended up, the Assyrians brought them there, and yeah. they broke up the ten tribes. Right, right. But they felt that they were entitled to it, and they thought that yeah. themselves as being Jews. Yes, yes, they they were they were sincerely disappointed in the uh, exclusive nature and uh, in, uh, unwelcoming nature of the returning Judean exiles. So they no. No. According to our tradition, they were brought in from Kuta, from other places, and they were ethnically not of our group. 
However, realistically speaking, there probably were remnants of the ten, the ten tribes who never left and who commingled with those that the Assyrians brought in in transfer of population, so that there was uh, a mixed breed, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. According to the Tanakh, yeah, according to the Tanakh, there were elements of all the tribes that were brought southward before, after the destruction of the north and before the destruction of the south, so that the later Davidic kings ruled over a hodgepodge of bits and pieces of all 12 tribes. So is it safe to say that we currently are a composite of these people? Maybe, yeah, okay. Now, in Nehemiah's time, Jerusalem was larger than it had been geographically before, but it was small in population. So it was necessary to draw lots to get people to move to Jerusalem from the countryside. One out of every 10 Jews was ordered to move to the holy city. The problem when Nehemiah came back after having been away for a while was intermarriage. And the solution, according to Ezra Nehemiah, is to expel the foreign wives. So Jerusalem is now becoming ethnically homogeneous. It had been heterogeneous for a while. It's now going to be homogeneous. Get rid of all the outsiders. What about conversion? No, no conversion. (laughs) Semi-independent statelet of Yehud was part of a bigger Persian empire. But it was governed by the laws of the Torah. And it was ruled locally by the Tzadokite high priests. So the Tzadokite high priests, the B'nai Tzadok, are the ecclesiastical leaders, but also the local political leaders under the nominal authority of some Persian satrap somewhere. Now, let's go to Alexander. Hundred and fourteen. Okay. Now, Alexander ordered Jerusalem to provide provisions for his army. That's the first encounter with the Macedonians. We're talking now in the year 336. So the Jews initially refused, but then they saw how much of a cutthroat he was and they gave provisions. According to legend, recorded in Josephus and in the Talmud, but probably ahistorical or almost certainly ahistorical, Alexander goes to Jerusalem and prostrates himself before the high priest, whether it's Yadua, according to Josephus' account, or Shimon Tzadik, according to the Talmudic account. Um, historically, I don't think he ever went. He never inland. He stayed along the coast, which is why we assume that this didn't really happen. But it's also how he conquered the island. There. Was, so, during the wars of the Diadochi, Jerusalem changed hands six times. Jerusalem, unfortunately, was along the seam line between the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires, which means that everybody's fighting over it all the time. Uh, Ptolemy conquered the city by ruse. He arrived on Shabbos and asked for permission to worship in the Holy Temple. The Jews fell for it and didn't fight on Shabbos at that time, and so his forces rampaged through the city, killing thousands and deporting others. Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, was much better to the Jews. He donated gold to the temple, and he also commissioned the the translation of the Torah, which is not for now, because it's not the history of Jerusalem, but it goes to show that he was interested favorably in Jewish affairs. Yehud remained semi-independent with its uh, basically just a, a state in Jerusalem and its immediate surroundings, ruled by the Onayid family of Tzadokite priests. Joseph the Tobayid of the Tobayid family would muscle their way to the front 
and take political control in the latter half of the, of the third century BCE, ruling as surrogates for the Ptolemies. Then in 198, after 103 years of Ptolemaic rule, Antiochus III conquers Jerusalem. But don't think that he's a bad guy. He's a good guy. He makes all sorts of promises that you can rule the city according to Torah law. He donates to the temple. He promises to provide the salt and the grain and the oil and the flour, all the, all the goodies that you need to run the sacrificial cult. He's paying for it. So that's wonderful. It's his son, Antiochus IV, who causes a lot of trouble. But before, before we get to Antiochus IV, let's just keep in mind that Shimon Hatzadik, Simon the Righteous, there were two Simons. There was Simon number one and Simon number two. Simon number two lived around the time of Antiochus III, and he was regarded as the ultimate Kohen Gadol. The Mare Kohen of Yom Kippur, the, you know, the glorious poetry about the, 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 the high priest who comes out of the Holy of Holies in Yom Kippur, that's written about Simon the Righteous, Shimon Atzadik. It's talking about this Shimon of Antiochus III's time. So things are, are wonderful. Things are good in Jerusalem, but there's a problem. There's a problem in the city that's developing a little first beneath the surface and then out in the open. And what is that problem? That there is a divide between the frum and the not so frum, between the assimilated, Hellenized, uh, wealthy types who live in the upper city on the western hill and the poor, more religious types who live down in the valley and in the lower part of the city below the Ophel. So this uh, you know, family feud between the pious and the impious is eventually going to come to a head. It's exacerbated by Antiochus IV. Now, Antiochus IV of the, the Hanukkah story, he's cash-strapped. He needs money. So in 170, he loots the temple. And in the process, um, you know, does a lot of bad things. He deports thousands of Jews. Plenty of people die. And he entered the Holy of Holies. And he stole sacred vessels from the Kodesh. So that's pretty bad. No heathen was supposed to go inside the inner sanctum. And he does because he doesn't care, but he's a madman. And then in 167, he puts the abomination of desolation, the, the, uh, the toeva on the Mizbeach, and he outlaws Judaism, and the Hanukkah story we've told many times before. Question. Yeah. He takes the Caleb. Yeah. So I can assume that in the Ark of Titus, they had replacement menorahs. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, Judah Maccabee retakes Jerusalem in 164, except for the Acre, which is a, 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 a fortified position where the heathen Jews and the Macedonian Greek uh, soldiers are, are stationed. Jerusalem changes hands a few times. Eventually, the Hasmoneans are, are forced out. Jonathan goes into the wilderness. And he comes back in 153 as the high priest. A few years back when we discussed Second Temple period, I, I went to at length about how he became the Kohen Gadol, despite the fact that he was not from the Tzadokite line, and he was regarded as the wicked priest by certain sectors of the Jewish population, including possibly the Essenes, who then go off into the wilderness because they regard him as an impious priest. So now that the, the Hashmonaim rule Jerusalem, they're the bosses. But still pretty dangerous, and Jonathan is taken hostage in 143. He's eventually uh, killed while in captivity. His brother Simon, the last of the Hasmoneans, takes over in 142 and is proclaimed Simon the Great, high priest, commander-in-chief, and leader of the Jews. He himself was assassinated in 134 by his son-in-law. 
Okay, so nobody dies old age. They all get killed. So I, 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 you know, they they live their lives. I I, I don't want to get caught off guard with the diaspora right now. Yeah. Okay, we're about to get to it. Yeah. Okay, so John Hercules takes over the son of of Simon, and Antiochus the seventh Sedates besieges Jerusalem, and he could easily have won. And in in last year we discussed anti-Semitism. I mentioned that Sedates' advisors told him to commit genocide, that kill off all the Jews, that they they are different from us, that they have different religious ways, that they are misanthropic and they hate all other people, so therefore do away with them completely. Genocidal action against Jerusalem. He doesn't do it. Hyrcanus pays a bribe, uh, and he plunders the, the tomb of David in order to pay off Sedates. John then builds the first wall around a growing city. Jerusalem is getting bigger and bigger. Hyrcanus has a successful reign of about 30 years. Uh, the city is growing. Yanai takes over after his brother, Aristobulus Philhellene, dies in 103, and he officiates on Sukkot, and what happens to him on Sukkot? They throw the Esrogim at him. So Yanai was not a well-liked figure. He killed thousands of his own people. Uh, this is not a good time for the common man in Jerusalem because it's, it's dangerous. It's, you know, the, the leader is, is not a madman necessarily, but ruthless. Yanai dies and Salome Alexandra takes over and she rules together with the Pharisees, but the Romans are on their way. And the Hasmonean kingdom is not long for this earth. The major, the, 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 the major event of the first century BCE in the history of Jerusalem is the conquest of Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 63 by the general Pompey. The delegation was sent to Pompey from Jerusalem, three separate delegations, one from Hyrcanus II, one from Aristobulus II, the two brothers who were fratricidal brothers who were you know, each vying for the throne. And a third delegation who wanted what? Neither of the two. Rid us completely of the Hasmoneans. We don't want them anymore. Okay, so what happens? Pompey makes uh, Hyrcanus the, the high priest and gives Hyrcanus's right-hand man, or really handler, or brains, Antipater, political control. Antipater is the father of? Herod. Herod. Good. Okay. So Herod is on the rise. Herod is on the rise. By, by the way, Pompey enters the Holy of Holies, as had Antiochus IV. So here in the history of Jerusalem, we have another heathen king or heathen leader breaking the rules of our religion and going where they shouldn't be going. Did he steal anything? No, he didn't steal anything. He went out of curiosity, intellectual curiosity, wanting to know is the, um, uh, is the, is the God of the Jews really the incorporeal God they claim that he is? And the answer was yes. That there was nothing there. There was no image of a donkey or or a Moses on a whatever. There were all sorts of theories of what Jews believed in that the that the heathens were curious about, but he found nothing. Okay. Um, no, no, but the but the but the Goyim had various ideas about what the Jews believed in. Okay. So Herod is on the rise, but the Parthians, the Persians, take over in the year forty, and they install Antigonus. Uh, who was the last of the great uh, Maccabean uh, Hasmonean kings as king of Judea and high priest. But Octavian and Antony back in Rome declare Herod to be king of Jerusalem. 
but he has to go and conquer his kingdom. It's one thing to be hailed in the, in the Roman Senate as the king, but you got to go take it. So a 40-day siege of Jerusalem, Herod wins and executes most of the Sanhedrin. 45 members of the 71-member Sanhedrin are executed by Herod. Under duress, Herod appoints Mariamne's brother, his, his Maccabean wife, Mariamne. Her brother, Jonathan, was, was appointed high priest because Herod is not, is not a Kohen. Remember, kings want to be both Melech and Kohen Gadol, but you can't if you're not a Kohen. Herod is hardly Jewish at all. So he has to appoint his, his detested brother-in-law, who eventually he has drowned. He invites him to a, to a swimming pool in Jericho, and they put his head underwater, and, they, and he doesn't come back up. Okay, so he was the Kohen Gadol, yeah. So what was Herod? Herod was Phoenician by descent, Hellenized by culture, Idumian by place of birth, Jewish by religion, Jerusalemite by residence, and Roman by citizenship. That's a mouthful. And he married a, and he married a, b- a bunch of women, including a whole lot of Jewish women. Okay. Now, Herod built the city of Jerusalem. It was his masterpiece. He built a citadel with three towers, including one which was 128 feet tall. Antonia, named after his patron, Mark Antony, dominated the Temple Mount from the north, while the citadel ruled the city from the south. And his palace was to the south of the citadel. He rebuilt the temple. He knocked down the old one. And the Jews were nervous, nervous that he would do what? that he would not build it back, that he knocked down the old structure on the promise to rebuild the new one, but that maybe what would happen, he wouldn't bother to do it. But he did. And the Holy of Holies was done within two years, and the whole complex was done in 80 years. 80 years. Took a long, long time. He was long dead when it was coming to conclusion. The truth is it never really was completed. If you go to, to you know, take the, 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 the uh, Kotel Tunnel Tours, and they explained to you what was going on. They said even, even at the, when, they, when the revolt broke out in 66, they were still working on the northwest corner. Yeah, yeah. Now, he, <laughs> he did a lot of good and a lot of bad, but mostly bad. Now, he expanded the esplanade to the south, built over arches known as Solomon's Stables, and created a three-acre platform, the raised platform, which is today you know, the Haram al-Sharif, the, no, the, the noble sanctuary. Herod was, was, was nuts. He killed left and right. They said about Herod, I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son, because at least he wouldn't eat pork, because he was Jewish and he kept kosher, but he would kill his own son, and he killed a few of them. When Herod died, he was succeeded by Archelaus, who was not very impressive. He tried to soften the policy of his fathers, but still there was rebellious foment, and on Pesach there was an outburst, and 6,000 people were killed. The Romans were not happy with Archelaus, and so they decided after 10 years, no more kingdom will now have direct Roman rule by low-level uh, uh, prefects. So that's where you have Pontius Pilate. We're not going to discuss the Jesus story of the year 33. It's not for us, but that's a, uh, in, in this, in Montefiore's book on Jerusalem, he spends a whole chapter on it because he has a Christian audience reading his book. But we don't need to worry about that. Now, Caligula gave all the lands of Herod to Agrippa I. Herod's grandson. We're talking now in the year 37. Caligula takes over as the emperor. He was crazy. He married his horse. Uh, he, uh, he made his horse a consul. Yeah, yeah. All right. I think he married him too. Now, uh, Agrippa, Agrippa prevented the installation of an idolatrous image of Caligula in the temple. This is an important point. And I'll read to you what Agrippa wrote to Caligula. He took a chance because he could have been killed for it. And this is 
uh, it's relevant because the temple could have been destroyed a whole generation earlier than what it actually was, if not for the fact that this episode ended well. So here, I write, I, I as you know, I'm a Jew by birth, and my native city is Jerusalem, which is situated on the, the, the sacred shrine to the Most High God. This temple, my Lord Gaius Caligula, has never from the first admitted any figure wrought by men's hand, no graven image, because it is the sanctuary of the true God. Your grandfather, Marcus Agrippa, visited and paid honor to the temple, and so did Augustus. Uh, I, ex- I exchange all these benefits that you've given me for one thing only, that the ancestral institutions be not disturbed. Either I must seem a traitor to my own or no longer be counted as your friend as I have been. There is no alternative. Meaning, I'm a Jew. I got to protect my peeps, my, my folks. We, we have a, a no graven image policy in our temple. So I know you've been very good to me, Caligula. But I can't be your friend if you're going to put a graven image in the temple. And what happened? Caligula capitulates. And then he gets killed. He first he capitulates, but he also gets killed. So Claudius, Claudius takes over. Claudius did not want to be emperor. He actually wanted to, to restore the republic, but he sort of grudgingly accepted uh, uh, the, the scepter. He was, more he was much more normal. He was a, a fairly good emperor by as emperors go. Now Agrippa becomes king. Claudius confirms that Agrippa has the throne of Judea. And Agrippa, according to the Talmud, reads Devarim at Hakel. And what happens when he reads Devarim at Hakel? He cries. Why does he cry? Because he knows he's not really a legit king because it says, You can't uh, put a foreigner on the throne of, of Jerusalem. It has to be a native-born son. And Agrippa is sort of half Maccabean, half Herodian, but the half Herodian part is not indigenously Jewish. And what do the people say? Achinuata, Achinuata, you're our brother, you're our brother. They sort of uh, placate him and do uh, make him feel good. But the Gemara says that they deserve destruction for that because it was, it was not, not honest, that he should not have been a king because he was not uh, from, uh, from Achicha, an indigenous Jew. Okay, so he died in 44. Some say he was poisoned. He only had a reign of three years. But he was the one man, Agrippa I, who possibly could have avoided the destruction of Jerusalem. Once he died, it was like a foregone conclusion that Jerusalem is going to come to a bad end. A very bad end. Okay. Riots followed his death. The kingdom of Judea was eliminated. Procurators took over. Herod of Chalcis was given the right to appoint high priests and manage the temple while he had a little kingdom uh, in the north of, uh, northeast of Galilee. The gap was widening between the, the wealthy Romanophile Jews and the poor religious masses. The procurators were all corrupt and they milked the province for everything they could get out of it, whether it was Felix or Florus. Um, it, it was a bad time. In terms of Roman soldiers in the city, there was only a, a small rump force of about 600 to 1,200 men at the Antonia. Uh, and that was not enough to control the city if a rebellion broke out. It was a, just enough to watch over the city, but reinforcements would have to be brought from the outside if any major disturbances occurred. Now, the truth of the matter is the temple, the city was, was wealthy. 
in the last generation of its existence before the destruction. It was a wealthy temple city because money was coming from all over the diaspora, the Machatzida Shekel, donations, Jews all over the world were sending money, 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 money. It's a lot of money. It, the city was run by a Jewish high priest, okay, and who was appointed by a Jewish king, a king not ruling out of Judea, but ruling out of the Galilee. Still, the people were not happy, and revolutionary ferment was growing. When the temple complex was completed, 18,000 people were out of a job. And that's not good. Unemployed blue-collar workers is a, is a disaster waiting to happen. So Herod Agrippa II, who uh, was the Tetrarch of the Galilee and the superintendent of the temple, created more work by commissioning new streets. What street was commissioned by Agrippa II in the last few decades of, of, of Jerusalem before the destruction? Uh, so the Cardo, I think, was a little bit earlier, but not that much earlier. It was in the first century. The Western Wall Street, oh. the street where we have the Kotel today. So down below, all the way at the bottom, at the lowest layer of civilization, was a Roman paved street that was built among the last things before the destruction. You can see some of it in the archaeological garden, and you can see some of well close to some of it in the Kotel tour, uh, tunnel tour when they sh- when you look down through the glass window and they show you, oh, we're getting closer and closer to the bottom. Okay. The stairs that go up to Robinson's Arch. So uh, the, so the, 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 the Robinson's Arch, which only a small portion of it actually is there. You can only see like the little yeah. bit sticking out of the wall. Uh, so that that was roughly at the ground level at that time. As you go further north, where we have today is way above the, what the ground level had been back then. Okay, so... Yeah, yeah. So, um, Procurator Floris was so bad that even the Jewish elites could not count on him for protection. Once the Jewish elites couldn't count on the, on the procurator, a rebellion was very likely to happen. And so the Great War of 66 to 70, which we're not going to go into in any detail, we've discussed in past courses, and now we'll stop. But I want to say the key point for tonight with which we'll conclude. Up until the year 70, the history of Jerusalem is the history of the Jewish people and of the Jewish religion. So much of what I mentioned tonight, you've heard of. The history of Jerusalem after the year 70 is not the history of the Jewish people and the Jewish religion. It's the history of a forgotten place, which still held sentimental uh, value in the hearts of Jews elsewhere in the world. But they were elsewhere. So your average Jew, even who's a fairly decent student of Jewish history, doesn't know all that much about what was Jerusalem like in the second century, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth, going onward up until modern times? Because where is the history of our people? Babylonia, Spain, Lithuania, other places. So this is what we're going to discuss in the next few weeks, the little-known stories of Jerusalem that don't always involve Jews, may involve people of other religions, heathens, Christians, Muslims, and a small Jewish community that still wants to, if at all possible, retain some connection to its place of former glory. Okay, so stay tuned. We'll see each other in two weeks, September 20th.